Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not on the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's been a tough week in America. Can we just say that a moment? Can we just mark that for a moment? Daily COVID deaths have crested the 4,000 mark. That is so many families in grief. Daily COVID cases have gone over 300,000. That is so many people sick. Families dealing with quarantine, navigating disrupted lives, and members of our own congregation continue to live that story of being COVID positive each and every week. Just know that you are in our prayers. And then Wednesday, there was the invasion of the Capitol building by an angry mob. A group of people showed up, meaning purely to intimidate, harass, and perhaps even harm our duly elected officials who were just doing their constitutional duty. And as you've been watching the news, as I have, I'm sure you realize there is a lot still to be uncovered about what really happened, and there's plenty of blame to go around, and we are far, far from understanding all the fallout about what happened on that day. But for today, I I think we can say as Americans, and we can say as Christians, that it was bad, and it was dangerous, and it was undemocratic, and it was antithetical to the way of the Prince of Peace. So, a hard week in America. We're all dealing with things that are hard to talk about outside of our circle of most trusted friends and family, and maybe they're even hard to talk about there. So what do we do? How do we recover our footing when it's been such a hard week? Well, the only thing that I know to do is to go back to the basics, to go back to where things are bedrock, to go back to the fundamentals and trust that there, if we go back to those fundamentals that we're gonna find ourselves, and we're gonna find our center, and we're gonna find God. Which is why I don't think it's a terrible thing that we're starting a new sermon series today, a sermon series focused in on our baptismal promises. It does not get more fundamental for us as Christian people than our two sacraments, baptism and Holy Communion. And of those two, baptism is the start. It's the start of our Christian journey. It's the beginning. My hope is that over the next several weeks as we look together over these baptismal promises that we're gonna be reminded about who God is and who we are and that we're gonna feel 
grounded and rooted in our faith, and that that's going to lead us to hope. And it's going to serve as a ballast for us. It's going to anchor us in the midst of whatever hard is yet to come. Now, if you've been in the United Methodist Church for very long at all, you will have seen the following scene play out. Parents get invited up to the chancel. They're dressed (coughs) in their best. They bring in their arms an infant or a toddler or sometimes a preschooler who's wearing a special outfit. Maybe it's one that's been handed down through the family, white and lace and ribbons to mark this special moment for generation after generation. And the parents stand up here and they usually look pretty nervous because they're not used to being up front. And they're standing there praying the baby doesn't cry or squirm too much or worse, spit up on the pastor. It happens. They sort of are listening to what the pastor's saying, introducing the sacrament, but also scanning the crowd, seeing who's there, seeing what are on people's faces. And then the pastor asks them these questions. And they stop scanning the congregation, they turn and look at the pastor, trying to listen intently to what's being asked. And I say, or the pastor says, on behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? And what do they say? They always say, we do. 19 years of pastoral ministry. I've never had someone say no to that question. Same thing with the two questions that follow. I'm not sure what I would do if they did say no, but that moment just before baptism, that's not the moment to weigh the options, right? But it doesn't mean that the questions we're asking are unimportant just because we know the answer. Doesn't mean those questions don't deserve some pondering. So that's what I wanna do with you over these next several weeks. I wanna ponder with you these questions And the first question is this one about the repentance of sin. Now, before you go thinking this is going to be a terrible downer of a sermon, one that I've crafted just to make you feel bad today, that you have to get in touch with all your screw-ups, that I'm going to lay down some big guilt trip on what's already been a terrible week, that's not what this is. Not at all. Because the gospel is good news. Always, 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 the gospel is good news. So even when we are talking about the reality of sin and our deep need for repentance, we do so in the context of God's grace and good news. And this is what the scripture points us toward. The story comes from the gospel of Luke, and Christy did such an excellent job of telling it for us in the children's sermon, this moment when Jesus calls a disciple named Levi. Usually we think of the calling of the disciples as when he called Peter and James, who were fishermen, and they left their nets and they followed him. But Jesus didn't just call fishermen. Of his 12 disciples, uh, they did a variety of things before they started following Jesus. And now being a fisherman is not some kind of glamorous job in the ancient Near East, but it was a whole lot better than what Levi did for a living. Levi was a tax collector. He worked for the government. Not just the government, he worked for the Roman government, which was the occupying government. And as Christy told us, he had the chance to collect more taxes than he had to give to the Romans, and uh, that meant that he would be wealthy by exploiting the populace. So needless to say, tax collectors were not well-liked people. I mean, we don't even like tax collectors today, and it's a little fairer system than what they had going on. 
But Luke makes it clear to us that Levi is not a well-respected person. Because after Levi leaves his tax collecting booth, and he does it just as fast as those fishermen left their nets, Levi throws a big dinner at his house for Jesus. And the religious leaders got furious. They complained. Do you remember what they said to Jesus? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we don't know exactly who else was at that table, what they had done, why they were labeled sinners, but saying tax collectors and sinners is basically like saying tax collectors are sinners, right? Not people you want to keep company with. If we wanted to set the table in modern terms, we might think that Jesus was sitting around with, I don't know, some opioid addicts, maybe some convicted felons. Perhaps there was an adulterer or two at the table. Perhaps there was even an untruthful politician sitting with him that day. No matter who they were or what they had done, though, Jesus' answer to the question is very simple. He says he's with those people because they are the ones that need him. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus has come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was true in ancient Israel, and it's true today. And the bad news is, that means us. Now I know you are a nice person. You are a very nice person. I know that. You try to be kind. You try to offer help when you can. I do too. But I also know that you screw up. You make mistakes. You say things you shouldn't. You pass judgment on others. You neglect those in trouble. You exclude other people. You act selfishly. You harbor grudges. You call names. You turn away from God again and again. I know you do that because I do that. We all do that. It's part of being human. We fall short of righteousness again and again. And sometimes we do it in small ways that are only apparent inside our own hearts. And sometimes we do it in ways that really hurt other people and that cause a big mess. But there's good, good news. The scripture reminds us that in the face of our sinfulness, Jesus invites us to sit down to a meal with him. He's not the kind of guy that just stands at the door and yells at us from afar. He doesn't condemn us from some high and holy place and just leave us to our punishment. No, the opposite. Jesus comes and he sits down with us. He eats dinner with us. He wants to be with us. He wants to talk to us. He wants to help us so much that he does this incredibly intimate thing of sharing a meal with the ones who need, us mo- need him most. Jesus changes us, not by lambasting from afar, but by coming to be with us, be in relationship with us. Jesus sits with us, and he helps us see ourselves for who we truly are, He leads us to understandings of our sins. He hears our regret, and then he offers pardon. He forgives. He heals. All of that 
is wrapped up in this first question of our baptismal liturgy. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? Do you reject the evil powers of this world? Do you repent of your sin? The question is a call to us to be real about ourselves, to admit our failures and our mistakes and to offer them to Jesus and trust in his grace. It's asking us to accept this invitation he gives us to dinner, an invitation to change us, to heal us, to restore us to the beautiful image of God that we were created to be. I'm not saying repentance is easy, I don't like to admit when I'm wrong any more than the next person, but I'm saying repentance doesn't have to be scary. When we repent to a God who loves us without end, we do so expecting freedom and forgiveness and reconciliation on the other side. And we need that. I need that. You need that. We need that as much as Christians have ever needed that, and Christians have always needed that, (laughs) which is why baptism is one of the oldest acts of Christian worship that we have. You know, in fact, archaeologists oftentimes figure out that an ancient building is a church because they find a baptismal pool in the floor. When they're uncovering the ruins, they'll find this eight-sided pool and they recognize that it's a baptismal font, and so they know that Christian worship happened there. It's eight-sided because tradition says that Jesus was resurrected on the eighth day of the week, a way to say the resurrection happened outside of time. From our earliest days, Christians knew that this act of baptism was central to following Jesus, to knowing who we are as God's children, and so everybody was baptized, everybody. No exceptions, no exceptions. I think it's possible that there are a couple people who are watching worship today who have not been baptized or whose children have not been baptized. So as we're talking about baptism these weeks, I just wanna invite you, if you haven't been baptized or your children haven't been, talk to me. Even in the middle of a pandemic, we can do baptisms, okay? And I would love to talk to you about that and pray with you about that. If it's time for you or your children to receive these waters of grace, call me, email me, let's talk. Because baptism is an essential part of Christian discipleship. Not not because it's some sort of litmus test or a, a hazing ritual. It's essential because over time it has been proven to be one of the most reliable ways that God dispenses grace to us. That's what it is above all, an act of grace where God's love rains down on us and washes over us and brings us healing and mercy and release. It's this moment of transformation and starting life as a follower of Jesus. Here's the funny thing about baptism though. You don't have to be aware of everything that's happening in order for it to work. Baptism is God's act alone. You don't have to feel anything particular in your heart. You don't have to be even overwhelmed by sacredness. I hope that happens in baptism, but it doesn't have to in order for it to work or be effective. You might find that kind of funny to say that one, the one receiving it might not feel anything in the moment, but this is the thing. God doesn't require our feelings to confirm grace. And the truth about baptism is it takes a long time to mature. It's kind of like a seed that is planted and then grows and blooms 
and, and reveals to us over our lifetime what a gift we have in faith. For instance, that, that first question about repentance of sin, it's not a one-time thing. You don't just do it once at the font and then you're done. Repentance is a lifetime habit. We confess, we repent, we receive God's grace. And we do that in a big way of baptism. And then every time we remember our baptismal promise, we have the chance to do it again daily as a disciple of Jesus. Now, because we're going to be talking about baptism the next several weeks, I just want to take a moment to make sure that we're on the same page as United Methodists about baptism. And there are three important things that mark baptism in the United Methodist Church. For some of you that have been United Methodist a long time, this is old news, but I don't want to take anything for granted. So, first of all, we only do it one time in your whole life. If a person has received baptism from any other Christian church at any time, we do not repeat it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. No matter how old you were, no matter how crazy the circumstances, no matter how much you dislike the people who were there with you when it happened, we don't redo it. No matter how little you felt or how strongly you were converted a decade later, uh, if you don't remember anything about your baptism, no matter what, we do not do it a second time. Now, I know that there are folks in this congregation, like every United Methodist Church, who have been baptized more than once in their life. And I'm not saying that you did something horribly wrong to do that, okay? Some churches absolutely insist that you have to be baptized again if, according to them, you weren't the right age or they, you didn't do it right by the right method. I simply believe, and the United Methodist Church holds, that that second time, it wasn't necessary. It was like extra. You had the full measure of God's grace the first time around. So that's number one. You just do it once. Number two, it doesn't matter how old you are when it happens. And because of that, along with that, it doesn't really matter if you can give full assent to what's happening. God's grace is not dependent on your ability to say yes. If it was, we'd be the ones in control, not God. Instead, we believe God's grace is mysterious. It's beyond our full understanding. And that means that that even if you were a fully rational adult when you were baptized, you can't completely understand with your head what was happening in that moment. None of us can perfectly understand it. So that means there's not some kind of magic line between understanding and not understanding. The sacrament is open to everybody. And if we're baptizing children or people who cannot answer for themselves, we offer the sacrament of baptism based on the profession of faith of the person's caregivers. That's why we baptize babies or small children or mentally impaired adults. And we understand that God's grace is just as available to them as it is to any 30 or 50 year old that might come and kneel before the font. Now, I know that there are a few of you out there who are waiting to have your children baptized until they can understand what's going on. And that's an okay choice. If they're 10 or 14 or 20 when they're baptized, they're gonna have more vivid memories of it than those of us that were baptized as infants. But it's not necessary for the child to say a certain thing or be able to articulate a certain thing about God because baptism is always beyond our understanding. 
It's not something that we get because we believe the right thing. Baptism is a gift from God and a mystery. Third, it does not matter how much water we use. One drop is as good as a whole river full. God is able to do in a small amount of water the exact same thing that God can do in a whole swimming pool full of water. The amount of water doesn't matter. The water is an outward sign of an inward gift of grace. And that's what's important, not how wet you get. Though I do like to get people really wet when I baptize them. I will say that. But if a person desires, we normally do it by uh, sprinkling here with our font. But if someone came to me and said, Amy, I really want to be baptized by immersion, by going all the way under and getting fully wet, I would be happy to make that happen. I just know that God's love is just as available in a few drops of water as it is in a swimming pool. So those are some of the ins and outs of the sacrament of baptism in the United Methodist Church, and Christians can get really heated up about what's right and what's wrong. But I want to say, even though that's our practice in the United Methodist Church, they are not the end-all and be-all of the sacrament of baptism. Because ultimately, God's grace is God's grace to do with what God wants. So if God wishes to act outside of the ritual the way that we have formed it, if God wants to give grace and healing and freedom to people beyond our act of worship, well, God does that. I don't know how and when God acts. That's not something for me to understand. What I do know is that every time I have performed or witnessed an act of baptism, God has been pretty easy to see. Which is why baptism is a gift and it's a treasure to us. Something for us to celebrate each and every time it happens. Something for us to remember and cherish about our own lives. So this week, I want to invite you to reflect on your own baptism. Or talk to me if you haven't yet been baptized. Really, seriously, spend some time in prayer and reflection. Maybe you would write out the story if you know the story of your own baptism. Think about who was with you that day, who held you, who surrounded you, who supported you as you felt those waters of grace. And then when you have cherished that gift of your baptism, I want you to ask yourself again this first question of the liturgy. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? Do you reject the evil powers of this world and repent of your sin? Ask yourself that question. And then write down two or three ways that you are ready to make that true right now, this week. What concrete thing do you need to repent of today? What evil thing, what act or thought or intention do you need to reject in the days ahead? How will you claim this promise in the days to come and open yourself up to the healing and the forgiveness and the grace of God? May God guide our reflection, our repentance, our reconciliation, even in these hard days.